0: Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared, and in this episode, we are continuing our conversation of Albert Camus' *The Rebel*. We are on uh, part three, which is historical rebellion. So the first episode, I guess, we really started with the myth of Sisyphus, and then we went into you know the introduction and, and where Camus describes what a rebel is, etc. Section two is on metaphysical rebellion. So we have a whole video on section two as well where he really talks about, you know, I mean, rebellion in theory, I guess, right? The philosophers. In the section we're gonna to discuss, discuss today is historical rebellion, where it actually talks about people that have done it in the real world. Um, clearly, if you are a longtime listener of the channel, you know that this is in our wheelhouse. Um, Jared and I teach classes on resistance and revolution and history and social theory and so forth related to that. So this is basically what we have been looking for getting to this section. And it is very, very long. Um, (laughs) I guess it's not very long. It's relatively short compared to like, you know, I don't know, a Hegel or something. But it's the biggest section of the book, I think, for sure. Uh, So we're not going to touch on every single detail here, but we're going to do the best that we can. Anything to add before we jump in?
1: No, I mean, it was definitely my, my favorite section so far. Obviously, it's the one I connected to. most. Yeah. Like, I, I got to see a bunch of familiar names and him critiquing their philosophies, the Bakunians and the Marxes, and so on and so forth. I, I, I thought, you know, this section had the most meaning for me. But other than that, yeah, for sure. let's get going.
0: He says, quote, there comes a time, however, when justice demands the suspension of freedom. Then terror on a grand or small scale makes his appearance to consummate the revolution. Every act of rebellion expresses a nostalgia for innocence and an appeal to the essence of being. But one day, nostalgia takes up arms and assumes the responsibility of total guilt. In other words, adopts murder and violence. So his main argument for this section is that eventually what starts out as, you know, rebellion inevitably ends up in, you know, it it resorts to murder and violence to try to in pose, I guess, is a good word, the values of the revolution. And that this is, you know, it's not really unavoidable, but it definitely is worth studying, according to Camus, he says. Um, Anything there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I like the way he wrote it. It's kind of like that romantic feel, this idea of nostalgia for innocence, at least that's how kind of the social movement starts. And um, I often think about that, like, this idea that we approach Even like our course, Resistance and Revolution, with this idea of hope for the future, visions of tomorrow, these kind of like pie in the sky ideas. Obviously, Camus doesn't think it it ends there. For revolution to take place, you actually have to take on this responsibility of total guilt and adopt the murder and violence part, um, which is obviously one of the key debates that still takes place in in revolutionary theory right it's it's not as simplified as violence versus nonviolence but it's implied right like this idea of like that we can kind of create this this hope for change and do so through the means that would be most effective without costing people their lives or livelihoods. But in reality, oftentimes, and especially in historical examples, the ones that are most, and again, I'm going to use air quotes here, effective, we debate whether revolution actually leads to any lasting change. But regardless, the ones that are most effective are the ones that do adopt this this murder and violence, or at least so says Camus. So I find it kind of interesting as a, as a, as a way to, to to connect to it through content we've already kind of dove into in the past.
0: For sure. Um, He says, a change of regulations concerning property without a corresponding change of government is not a revolution, but a reform. There is no kind of economic revolution, whether its methods are violent or pacific, which is not at the same time manifestly political. Revolution can already be distinguished in this way from rebellion. So he throws in a little bit on reform versus revolution. We actually have a whole video that's like the four types of social movements that we use in our course to explain David Adderley's original conception of reform versus revolution. Camus actually kind of kind of is in the same ballpark, though slightly different, which he'll get to a little bit later on. Um, but it's interesting that in this section, now that he's actually covering revolution for the first time, he gives us the, def- the difference between rebellion and revolution. So we finally get to that because he talks about rebellion in the myth of Sisyphus and all in the first you know, half of his book. He never gets to uh, what an actual revolution is until this section. Uh, So this is him explaining that. He says, rebellion is by nature limited in scope. It is no more than an incoherent pronouncement. Revolution, on the contrary, originates in the realm of ideas. Specifically, it is the injection of ideas into the historical experience, while rebellion is only the movement that leads from individual experience into the realm of ideas. That is why rebellion kills men... While revolution destroys both men and principles. But for the same reasons, it can be said that there has not yet been a revolution in the course of history. There could, be, there could only be one, and that would be definitive revolution. So linking back to the previous section on metaphysical rebellion, you know, he says that rebellion kills men, while revolution destroys men and principles. The rebels that he talked about, you know, Saad, Stirner, Nietzsche, and so forth, the poets and so on. They were, you know, the, what does he call Stirner and Nietzsche, the absolute affirmative, right? And he says, "Sod" is the absolute negation. That, you know, murder was definitely on the table for all of the people that he talked about in the rebellion. So killing of individual men was an acceptable action according to their philosophies, but they didn't really take on principles so much, uh, and definitely not in the real world, as we're going to read uh, here, the revolutionaries do. Um, He then says, total revolution ends by demanding we shall see why total control, the control of the world. Anything
1: there? So the first thing is I like that he removes the tag of failure from rebellion. Oftentimes mm-hmm. in revolutionary circles, we assume rebellion or rebellion is taught by like whatever the winners, the, hit, the winners write history. Right. So says um, every cliche ever. But that rebellions are usually um, tagged as such because they fail. Well, Camus doesn't necessarily tag them that way. So I appreciate that. The second part is um, this idea that we have yet to actually see a definitive revolution is something we've talked about ad nauseum on this channel, as well as in our classes. While we can frame the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, perhaps even the, the United States War for Independence as revolutionary in certain aspects, we always we always come back full circle to the argument that none of them was truly revolutionary in its complete um, annihilation of certain principles. Um, of it's a of their lack of annihilation of hierarchy and stratification, um, and certain social and cultural cues. We argue that they're not that, as revolutionary as we frame them. Um, and so again, I appreciate that Camu was also pointing that out. He's arguing that there will only be one definitive revolution. So that also gives us a chance and we have critiqued the idea that even some of the more abstract revolutions that do fundamentally over time and space change human behavior, fundamentally, agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, technological revolution, um, it also challenges those notions that those were even revolutionary. I argue, and I have argued for a long time, they were more evolutionary, given the amount of time it took for them to make those type of, of, of fundamental changes to human behavior and social organization. So again, I guess what I'm saying here is I appreciate that Camus, decades earlier, is saying similar things. So it was nice to nice to stumble across this.
0: He begins his actual analysis with the French Revolution, um, which chronologically is basically the same time he starts his analysis of the metaphysical rebels with the Marquis de Sade. So, you know, he basically says metaphysical rebellion and historical rebellion. It's within a few decades, at least, uh, of the same time frame, which is kind of interesting. He says, the majority of revolutions are shaped by and derive their originality from murder. All or almost all have been homicidal, but some in addition have practiced regicide and deicide. Just as the history of metaphysical rebellion began with Saad, so our real inquiry only begins with his contemporaries, the regicides, who attack the incarnation of divinity without yet daring to destroy the principle of eternity. And then he goes straight into this section that is the regicides. If you never heard the term regicide before, somehow that's the killing of a king. Um, And he argues that kings were killed very clearly before the French Revolution, but that their murderers in the past were attacking the individual king like as a human being. He argues that the French Revolution was really the first where the king was attacked to kill the principle of kingship and monarchy overall. So he says, quote, 1789 is the starting point of modern times because the men of that period wished, among other things, to overthrow the principle of divine right and to introduce to to the historical scene the forces of negation and rebellion, which had become the essence of intellectual discussion in the previous centuries. So, I mean, this isn't anything new, right? Like theorists of revolution, almost all of them start with the French Revolution as well. It's often touted as sort of the archetypical uh, revolution. Um, some people start with like the American War for Independence, which is actually how we start our class on revolution, but we actually frame it as a discussion of whether or not it was really revolutionary, which we both agree that it wasn't. Um, but as Jared said, we could also have the debate of whether there's ever been uh, a, truly a revolution. Um, anyway, so he starts his analysis with the French Revolution. Uh, anything yet that you want to add?
1: No, not till the new gospel. Oh, okay, cool.
0: Um the one thing that I did like here, because we in our classes have the debate on why the French revolutionaries killed the king, you know, why was it necessary to kill Louis? And I like Camus' argument, and I don't know if he's the first person ever to say this, but I like the way that he frames it. He basically says, you know, because we have a discussion in class, well, they had to kill him, otherwise, you know, one of his heirs could have, the bloodline, they could have, you know, it could have somehow continued, and so they could have came back and claimed the throne, uh, etc but Camus argues that the reason they had to kill him was because he was the human embodiment on earth of divine right and of God in that um, so he says quote in a France entirely governed by new principles the principle that had been defeated still survived behind prison walls through the mere power of faith and through the existence of one human being the king must die in the name of the social contract so basically it basically says they had to kill the king because that was sort of the final blow to divine right and the power of God and the divinity on earth because Louis represented that, he was the embodiment of that. So while the king was still alive, even if he was in prison, which he was, while he was still alive, he was still a threat to the legitimacy of the revolution. So they had to uh, take, that, uh, take him out. And we all know where we're going with this in the French Revolution guillotines, etc., But Camus has actually something to say about that as well. The next section is the new gospel. And basically the new gospel for Camus is the social contract and Rousseau and social contract theory, et cetera. He said, you know, when the French revolutionaries killed King Louis and with him, divine right and the monarchy, that they elevated in its place, this idea of the social contract. He says, quote, the social contract, is primarily an inquiry into the legitimacy of power, but it is a book about rights, not about facts. And at no time is it a collection of sociological observations. I like this statement because, you know, to this day, even, I think people take Rousseau's ideas as fact, especially his analysis of, you know, man in the state of nature and so forth, and the social contract really as this sort of like pinnacle and inevitability. You know this inevitable way of organizing human beings as if like the progress of social organization was just inevitably we were going to evolve to this point right it's somewhat like teleological in that aspect camu basically is pointing out here like there's literally nothing scientific about it it's not based in any kind of data whatsoever on the way that humans behave or any kind of even biology or like human nature like there's nothing factual about it it's purely philosophy um And as a result, social contract theory is just as dogmatic and quote-unquote religious in uh, Camus' opinion, right? He says the social contract amplifies and dogmatically explains the new religion whose God is reason, confused with nature, and whose representative on earth in place of the king is the people, considered as the expression of the general will. Do you have any comments on that?
1: So I mean I think you hit on most of what I was going to say the notion that the social contract is some sort of like empirical proof over time and space that this is the way of course humans are going to organize moving forward is a product of a certain type of framing. The framing from that Enlightenment era, where again, mm-hmm. it's not just with the social contract, it's a whole host of ideals um, and material properties that we've taken from that era, that very specific era, that 1700s, 1800s era, and applied to like the modern world as like fact. As somehow this time period set up the way that we're going to do things as humans moving forward because all of a sudden all of these ideas um, spring forth. Well, that's not necessarily the case. It is just another philosophy alongside other philosophies that are older, and it just happens to be the one that was most convenient for the hegemon um, to take root in, or the new hegemon. And that's why I think Camus is talking about it as the new gospel. It's just as guilty of being based solely in faith, not fact, as divine right was before it. And the reason I also like it is because it's also tied, even though Camus doesn't really talk about this in his, we've spent a lot of time talking about it, the idea of birthing the nation state and nationalism and Mm -hmm. social contracts role in that. And we often argue that nationalism and that feeling and everything associated with it is just as religious. We talk about the French Revolution this way over and over again, especially when I teach it in the history classes is you have to keep in mind that at least the early stages in that first phase of the French Revolution, what has taken place is a complete annihilation of everybody's identity. It's not just like the actual thing, like Bastille's being stormed and so on and so forth. Feudalism's gone. Divine right is gone. Um, What else is gone? Even though the Catholic Church isn't gone, much of its power has been stripped. And so individuals living during this period of time are basically asking, okay, well, all these things are gone. What am I? Well, a couple of things fill that role, right? They answer that question for those individuals. What am I going to be going forward? What am I working for? What am I going to be fighting for? Well, now you're French. That's where the nationalism comes in. And of course, under this idea, there is going to be the social contract. And it gives people, again, a new faith um, to move forward with.
0: Well, yeah, and I think that the social contract and nationalism, like, go hand in hand, right? I don't think that you can have nationalism without being backed by this theory, you know, the social contract philosophy. Uh, and people make this mistake you know still to this day i hear people like well it's just natural right we've entered into a social contract and you're just like it's not natural there's nothing about natural about that way of organizing ourselves nor like Kimu points out was it based on science of any kind um i do want to say i think there's a lot of
1: go ahead I mean, and that, that speaks to this idea, the inevitability. And like I said, the comparison I like to make is like this idea of nation states themselves, right? Like we, we assume now because we live in them and this is the way we organize the world and we see it on maps. And when you meet somebody new, you say, I am from France and I'm from Uganda and I'm from Vietnam or whatever. Like we're just so used to it now. But keep in mind, it's only a couple of hundred years old and humans did not do this for the hundreds of thousands of years we've been around before that. The reason I bring this up is because that's what Camus is also challenging is the inevitability like that. It's not, it wasn't inevitable. It just happened to be the dominant power structure at a specific time and place. And other people began to adopt it because it became very effective at socializing people into certain ways of thinking, speaking, and acting.
0: Yeah. And I think that, I actually think that there's a lot of Stirner in this section. And we know that Camus has read Stirner because he discusses him in section two of the book where, you know, this whole idea of the French revolutionaries killed the idea of divine right and of religion and the supremacy of God, but they, you know, according to Stirner, this would be an error, right? Just replaced it with another transcendent abstract principle, right? And Camus makes the same argument, the exact same argument. Um, he says, let's see, the will of the people is primarily the expression of universal reason, which is categorical. A new God is born. Basically, the argument Camus is making is that the social contract theory is based on humans being naturally rational and reasonable, right? This will of the people is expressed in the social contract and it represents human nature. Therefore, human nature is also held sacred, right? That the will of all of these individuals, their nature as human beings, gets manifested in the will of the people which is represented by this social contract. And Camus says, quote unquote, the new God is born, right? This new transcendent uh, deity, uh, so to speak, it, it now exists in the name of the social contract, where before it was you know, God with a capital G and the king representing God through the divine right, that now the new deity is human nature through the social contract. Um, he also says something really, really interesting that I like a lot, and I think Jared does too, because we teach a lot about the philosophy and history of ideology. He has a footnote, this is on page 116, if you're looking at the paper version, where he says, every ideology is contrary to human psychology, which I think is a, funny that that's just a footnote, because I have it in my notes, so that, like, that's one of the most profound things, um, I think, that he says in this section. And you know, his, I also think this is really, really Sternarian, um, Sternian. I guess I don't know. I never thought of which word that is. Whatever. Um, <laughs> where an ideology only exists in the abstract, and in doing so, can only ever be a confrontation to our individual psychology—the way that we do actually operate as individual beings. Very clearly, there can no be be no all-encompassing, all correct, all the time ideology. So any ideology is uh, contrary to human psychology. I just love that footnote that Camus just throws in, that could be a whole book on stone, um, which I see people have written, Zizek, etc. cetera, Stirner, for sure, uh, and so forth. Okay, next he addresses the question, right? How can the revolution, which seeks freedom, and it does, right, freedom from absolutism and monarchy and divine right and so forth, how can it then end up executing so many people? Which if you know the history of the Re- French Revolution, which I just remembered now. We have an entire episode on. If you don't know the French Revolution, watch that episode. Um, how can I do that? He says, basically, the answer is because it's a revolution, uh, sorry, it's a religion, just like uh, it sought to overthrow. Um, so he says, quote, scaffolds seem to be the very altars of religion and injustice. The new faith cannot tolerate them, but a moment comes when faith, if it, is, if it becomes dogmatic, erects its own altars and demands unconditional adoration. Then scaffolds reappear, and despite the altars, the freedom, the oaths, and the feasts of reason, the masses of the new faith must now be celebrated with blood. I mean, he has actually another quote that uh, answers a little bit later, uh, you know, the guillotine, etc. His next section is the execution of the king, and in this section he describes why once the social contract theory is established as a new dogma, you know, the king must die et cetera, which we basically just said he talked about. He he threatens the legitimacy of the new revolution. However, this also, he goes into in this section, why France so relatively quickly started, you know, basically war on monarchy outside of its own geographical era, area. Because not just King Louis, but now once the, you know, social contract, their new government gets a little bit solidified, now the existence of any king across the globe threatens the legitimacy of their new republic. So they, have, they basically, Camus argues, have no choice but to go out and uh, try to attack monarchy across the globe, uh, which they do. He says that this represents a, a schism in history, this moment in time, which is why he focuses on it so much. Uh, quote, the condemnation of the king is at the crux of our contemporary history. It symbolizes the secularization of our history and the disincarnation of the Christian God. Up to now, God played a part in history through the medium of the kings, but his representative in history has been killed, for there is no longer a king. Therefore, there is nothing but a semblance of God relegated to the heaven of principles. So basically, he's solidifying his idea that kings have died, or at least need to die according to the, uh, the theories here. And as a result, God is no longer a player through history because his representatives on earth have been killed. So now the only thing left is the, he says, right, the heaven of principles, the principles of social contract theory, the principles of the republic, you know, I mean, as evidenced by the rights of man and so forth. Anything there?
1: No, I mean, I think, I mean, we... We kind of went through it rather quickly, but the war on tyranny, I think, is an important part of the French Revolution that's often overlooked. Mm-hmm. It's 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 this idea, and we see these these vague ideas even today. Um, obviously, we, we reside in a nation state that is guilty of these very vague wars on ideals or abstract ideals or abstract groupings of people, wars on terror, wars on drugs. Wars on poverty and so on and so forth. So I I do think that that's the key part that most people lose sight of. A, these are wars you can't win. It's first thing, can't win a war on an idea. Second thing is, but that's the idea, I guess. Before I even dig dig further into that, that war on the idea is where that purported notion of like how like empirical evidence is attached to it that this is scientific that we can actually do. We can, merely insinuating that you can fight this war on this abstract thing helps bolster the idea that this thing is actually not abstract, which gives us the dangerous notion that, again, that it is empirical, that there was a scientific or natural essence to it. That's the first thing. And that we are, and and in this case, that we are going to get rid of that and thus prove the validity of this new thing, whatever it is. The religion of virtue, he eventually calls it, right? The social contract. The second part of this is this idea that, and I think it's important because it's actually not even new because of the French Revolution. I would argue it goes back into human history, Long before this, but this idea of constantly orienting interest outward. So people don't necessarily understand the failures or the problems or the disassociations or disconnections with what this new thing is that you have tried to introduce. In this case, again, the social contract. If if all concentration for us, the unwashed masses, is kings there, kings there, kings there, terrorists there, terrorists there, there, communists, there communists there, communists there, whatever it is, it's an easy way to grant this false legitimacy to the current constructs that people are, that you're trying to socialize them into. Um, so that's what I always think of. The war on tyranny did as much to instill ideas in the French Revolution um, as the revolutionary process itself. Because I, like I said, if you ever want to make sure that the revolutionary ideals um, remain intact, one thing that you can do is immediately engage in some sort of conflict with an outsider afterwards. And immediately people will attach themselves to those that can protect them or those that can go to war, go, go to war with them go to war for them, I should say. Um, and that's, I mean, that's proven through numerous historical examples. I think the French one's like probably one of the best because again, they go on to try and take over a, a good chunk of Europe. And then we get- well, the Especially border. it's important that all of these
0: wars are against abstracts, right? So there's no winning, right? The war on tyranny, like cool, you're going to go try to topple monarchies, but that's not the only version of tyranny, right? Like you could literally do that for thousands of years attacking tyranny, you know, throughout the globe. Same thing with like the war on terror, right? You're never gonna win that battle. It's intentionally a never-ending war.
1: Right. Well, I guess I wasn't clear about it. Like that—that's one of the most effective ways to indoctrinate one's own population into whatever the mm-hmm. social theory or social form of organization it is—is is to have this never-ending war on an idea, because it gives people, it grants them that—that that identity you strip them. It gives them a reason for living, tied to the idea of the ethically constitutive story we've talked about. Why am I here? Um, well, here it is. You are here to basically prove the validity of this theory, this way of life, this this this. I don't know, form of social organization, you're here to fight commies, you're here to fight terror, whatever it is, right? To to prove the validity of what we're doing here, it gives people a reason for existing. Um, not a very good, and obviously, if we're going to be critical reason for existing, but for most of the unwashed masses, uh, dare I say the simpletons, it's, it's enough. Oh
0: I man, you sound a little bit like Stalin, but we'll get there in a second. Um, yeah, you're right. This war on idea. I mean, it's, it's boiled down to, right, if your population is constantly fighting some abstract idea, they don't have enough time to question whether their own existence is legitimate or not, right? Their, the existence of their own government and so forth, right? For sure. The next section is the religion of virtue. And he's basically explaining, explaining and arguing that, you know, this social contract just becomes the new religion. Um, he says, quote, the year 1789 does not yet affirm the divinity of man, but the divinity of the people to the degree in which the will of the people coincides with the will of nature and of reason. So, you know, it's not individual man nor abstract man or humanity, humanity that is deified here, but the people. And if you, you know, this terminology, if you're familiar with social contract theory and Rousseau and, you know, the philosophies that come after, right? The will of the people and the people's will you know, manifests itself in the Republican government and all of these things, right? But Camus is strict to point out that it's not individual man nor humanity. It's the people, right? It's abstract collection of the people's interests. So he says, quote, the religion of reason quite naturally establishes the republic of law and order. So law becomes incredibly, incredibly important during this period. And If you know anything about the French Revolution, you know that that is true because the law represents the codification of the people's will right and then it becomes just through logic that a violation of the law becomes a violation of the people's will which according to the philosophy is a representation of pure reason so you know essentially since the people's will is a representation of human nature and pure reason violating the law then becomes a violation of reason nature And then of oneself as well, in addition to the people, you know, this abstract people overall. Camus says, quote, the French Revolution, by claiming to build history on the principles of absolute purity, inaugurates modern times simultaneously with the era of formal morality. Every form of disobedience to law, therefore, comes not from an imperfection in the law, which is presumed to be impossible, but from a lack of virtue in the refractory citizen. He continues absolute virtue is impossible, and the republic of forgiveness leads with implicable logic to the republic of the guillotine. So essentially, the law is touted as perfect because it represents the will of the people, and how dare, we know this rhetoric continues even to this day, right? How dare anyone go against the will of the people, you know? So anyone that does, that breaks a law, or goes against the will of the people, or goes against the government that is supposed to represent perfectly the will of the people they themselves, as an individual, are the immoral ones. There is something wrong with them as an individual person, right? And their morality. And Kim argues this is what leads to the guillotine. And the next section in the book is called The Terror, which is where he talks about that. He essentially argues both the metaphysical rebel and the revolutionary arrive at the same conclusion. You know, the metaphysical rebel justifies crime against individuals. Well, the revolutionary justifies state terrorism he says quote both however justify terrorism the libertine justifies individual terrorism the high priest of virtue state terrorism absolute good and absolute evil if the necessary logic is implied both demand the same degree of passion um, and this is when he goes into you know how does the french revolution as this specific example end up you know murdering tens of thousands of people he says until this time, the scaffold was precisely nothing else but one of the most obvious symbols of oppression. But at the heart of this logic, logical delirium, at the logical conclusion of this morality of virtue, the scaffold represents freedom. So he says. Eventually, through this twisting of logic, this you know delusion, you know, the executions carried out in the name of the king represent to the revolutionaries absolute oppression. But they very quickly twist their logic. To you know, And we all know the guillotine on the platform and the tens of thousands of people executed uh, accordingly through the air of terror in the French Revolution, and they twisted their logic to where now executions under their own will represent the freedom of the people, right? What do you have to add on that?
1: I mean, it, it, not much. I think it's the idea that it's framed as liberatory. I think is the thing mm-hmm. that that he's after here, uh, especially when you think about it within that whole idea of protecting this new, like this new social contract, this new ideal, this new religion of virtue, as he called it. Mm-hmm. The sca- and, and, and I mean, it's exactly what he says, right? That scaffold is the thing that is literally liberating us from the confines or the shackles of of of, of the prior. I mean, I think that's it.
0: There's actually a really good episode uh, on a podcast that I cannot remember right now which one it was, but I'll look it up and put it in the show notes that, you know, the, the guest they have on talks about, I think he's an expert in the French Revolution and the guillotine and execution, et cetera, talks about like guillotine memes now, you know, that are used and the absolute dangers of that and the dangers that, you know, idolizing the guillotine and execution led to the French Revolution. Basically, exactly this idea, how this inversion of logic and this disillusionment leads us to think that somehow executing people leads to freedom, which is incredibly, incredibly dangerous, even if it's in the name of a revolution, perhaps, especially if it's in the name of a revolution. But I'll link that in the show notes if our listeners are uh, interested Camus says, quote, the Jacobin revolution, which tried to institute the religion of virtue in order to establish unity upon it will be followed by the cynical revolutions, which can be either the right or the left and which will try to achieve the unity of the world. So as to found at last the religion of man. The next section of the book is the deicides. He says, quote, from this moment, this moment, he's talking about German philosophy and Hegel. Um, I have that in parentheses. He says, from this moment, the idea that man has not been endowed with a definitive human nature, that he is not a finished creation, but an experiment of which he can partly be partly the creative. So he's transitioning now from this time when during the French revolution, you know, they believe that human beings had this innate human nature that then that was logical and rational that could be represented by the will of the people through the philosophy of the social contract. He says that once we get to Hegel, which is like, late 1700s early 1800s that once we transition to German philosophy it's this idea that human beings have this don't have a set human nature that it is evolving all the time and this is a huge shift in the way that people thought about themselves and history clearly and uh, human nature so uh, you know yeah I and mean, that's it and it's a really subtle difference I think but very very significant right the french believed according to camus that they were creating a government which would reflect true human nature in their republic and that was their motivation for the revolution but the revolutionaries after them which are inspired by hegel believe that they must revolt in order to bring about true human nature right the pinnacle of human nature they revolted to become their true selves you know and that's really really important And communist discourse, if you're familiar with, you know, socialism, et cetera, Marxism, Leninism, is steeped in this sentiment, for sure. So the French deified reason, as it reflected human nature, but the Germans, the German philosophy and the revolutionaries inspired uh, by that deified man himself. And it's important to understand that the term essence becomes important during this time. Feuerbach and, you know, Marx is inspired by this, this human essence. Right. It's
1: important in this time. This is um, like the, the conflating that capitalists and communists and basically all of these other individuals that buy into this notion of some sort of like, well, to be blunt, like scientific empirical way for their form of social organization or economic system um, to rationalize its existence is tied to like this positivist lens. Like, And the biggest part of that that I was trying to spit out is that oftentimes it's conflating this idea of human nature. Um, with this empiricism, right? Like, that's what I think he's after here.
0: Yep. He says for the Jacobin, everyone is virtuous. The movement, which starts with Hegel and which is triumphant today, presumes on the contrary, that no one is virtuous, but that everyone will be right. Which is really important. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, quote, the partially justified pretension of modern communism, like the more frivolous claim of fascism, is to denounce the mystification that undermines the principles and virtues of the bourgeois type of democracy. So he argues that just like the French Revolution destroyed divine right and God, capital G, uh, in that sense, the following revolutions sought to, I mean, seek to delegitimize social contract theory and bourgeois democracy. So it's just the next level of, you know, De-establishing, delegitimizing the set of principles that were established uh, through social contract theory and the, you know, the uh, will of the people, et cetera, the republic. Uh, he then goes into a lot of detail on Hegel and his philosophy and so forth and how it influenced the philosophers of the time. We're not going to spend time doing that. Otherwise, this will be a four-hour episode and uh, everyone will lose everyone for sure. So we're just not going to do that. Uh, maybe we'll revisit we've actually been dancing around Hegel for so long because we tend to talk a lot about German philosophy of this era, but we've never done an episode on Hegel because it would just be hours and hours and hours and hours. Uh, but Acany. someday it would be literal. Like, acne, someday, maybe yeah. we will do that. Yeah. The next section is um, individual terrorism, uh, the renunciation of virtue, three of the possessed where he talks about Pisarev and Bakunin and Nietzsche we're not gonna talk about this section either because we've done an entire two episodes on Russian nihilism specifically in this period in our series on nihilism. So we have one episode on I think it's revolutionary nihilism, and one episode specifically on fathers and sons by Turgenev and his characters and how they establish, you know, the idea of Russian nihilism of the time, et cetera. So we have two episodes on basically what Camus is talking about here. So check out those episodes if you really want to know about Russian nihilism. And now that I think about it, we actually have an episode on Bakunin too. Talking about some of his quotes and basic uh, philosophies and stuff like that. Next two sections, the fastidious assassins and the path of Chigalev. We're not going to talk about those either. He goes into some Russian literature, which, if you listen to the previous episode, um, we talked about. Basically, we're bored to death with Russian literature at this point. We did our uh, duty when we talked about Turgenev and mentioned Dostoevsky and etc. If we're not going to be here for months on Russian literature, we had to just dip our toe and get out real quick. And we're not going to jump back in here next and this is the section that really interests us is state terrorism and rational terror and i think this is probably the most important maybe the most important section of the book this is when he really gets into hot water i think we talked about in section two maybe it was section one how he at the time of writing this is currently in a philosophical debate with many people but most specifically sartre on marxism and what's happening in the soviet union And Camus does not agree with what's happening. And some people are making the argument that, you know, some people have to die in order for us to achieve this idyllic future. Camus disagrees. And him and Sartre actually, like, their friendship ends as a result of this debate. This is where Camus lays down his side and his version of events, And it's no surprise that Sartre writes a scathing critique of this book when it comes out, because he's basically going against everything Sartre his side of the debate, so here we go. Quote, all modern revolutions have ended in a reinforcement of the power of the state. 1789 brings Napoleon, 1848 Napoleon III, 1917 Stalin, the Italian disturbances of the 20s, Mussolini, the Weimar Republic, Hitler. These revolutions, particularly after the First World War, had liquidated the vestiges of divine right, still proposed with increasing audacity to build the city of humanity and of authentic freedom. The growing omnipotence of the state sanctioned this ambition on each occasion. Now, he argues that this isn't "quote unquote." He uses the term bound to happen; that it's not inevitable that a revolution leads to state terror, but it has happened often enough at this point that it worried. That it's worthy of examination. That's essentially, you know, uh, Camus' argument. Um, yeah. Quote. The prophetic dream of Marx and the over-inspired predictions of Hegel or of Nietzsche end up by conjuring, sorry, ended by conjuring up after the city of God had been raised to the ground, a rational or irrational state, which in both cases, however, was founded on terror. So he breaks it down into two categories, rational and irrational, and he makes the argument that irrational terror, that's how he categorizes the fascist regimes, regimes. He basically says, they do away essentially with. Rationality, and with their goal of liberating the people, and instead focus on individuals and liberate, you know, individual freedom. He says that that's the right direction. Uh, not right as not correct, but right as in like on the political spectrum. That's the fascist direction. He says the left direction. The leftists take it towards totalitarian rationality, basically. And here he's specifically talking about Stalin and entering in that debate. Um, He goes on in depth, he focuses mostly on Hitler in this section, um, but suffice to say that Camus actually thinks that fascist revolutions don't actually qualify as revolutions. He says, quote, the difference between them and the classic revolutionary movement is that of the nihilist inheritance, they chose to deify the irrational and the irrational alone, instead of deifying reason. In this way, they renounced their claim to universality. And yet Mussolini Mussolini makes use of Hegel and Hitler of Nietzsche. Sorry, let me say that again. And yet Mussolini t- makes use of Hegel and Hitler of Nietzsche, and both illustrate historically some of the prophecies of German ideology. In this respect, they belong to the history of rebellion and of nihilism. They were the first to construct a state on the concept that everything is meaningless and that history is only written in terms of the hazards of force. The consequences were not long in appearing. So clearly Consequences of fascism become evident through Mussolini and Hitler, uh, and so on. So he says they abandon all rationality and, as a result, give up any uh, goal of unity and universality. Which, then, according to Camus, they also forego their claim of being revolutionary. Instead, just become fascist regimes focused on, you know, inspired by nihilism. According to Camus,
1: well, in state uh, terror. Okay.
0: Yeah, exactly, state terror. Uh, next section, state terrorism and rational terror. Now we finally get to Marxism and Marx and the Marxist inspired, uh, inspired revolutionaries. And Marx's critique, the term, or sorry, Camus' critique of Marx, the term he uses is that he is a prophet, that Marx is a prophet just like all their other religious prophets, and that Marx's socialism is his quote unquote prophecy. Um, Camus defines Marx by his two contributions. First, his critique of capitalism. And second, his socialism, right, his his view of what will come next. So Camus says, quote, Marx in the 19th century, 19... go, go
1: ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it comes back to like that most basic definition that we've used over and over again, like through this channel and through our classes, right? Like just like any ethically constitutive story, this prophet is explaining why am I here and what happens in my future? Well, Marx is doing much the same, mm-hmm. right? Like this is what makes his belief not necessarily, like I said, from the positivist lens, scientifically empirical, it's religious. It is also faith-based, mm-hmm. which, of course, is going to offend every leftist that's actually our subscriber. But it's real, like that. This is faith-based,
0: right? Uh, Marx. This is Camus. Quote: Marx in 19th century England, in the midst of the terrible sufferings caused by the transition from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy, had plenty of material for constructing a striking analysis of primitive capitalism. As for socialism, apart from the lessons which for the most part contradicted his doctrines that he could draw from the French Revolution, he was obliged to speak in the future tense and in the abstract. Thus, it is not astonishing that he could blend in his doctrine the most valid critical method with a utopian messianism of highly dubious value. The unfortunate thing is that this critical method, which by definition should have been adjusted to reality, has found itself farther and farther separated from the facts to the exactest extent that it wanted to remain faithful to the prophecy. So Camus argues that Marx's critique of capitalism was essentially never adjusted to accommodate the ever-changing dynamics of what was actually happening during Marx's time. The rapidness with which capitalism was evolving, right, you know, Marx draws a line in the sand and makes his critique, but as a re- but then he never adjusts this critique to accommodate the new aspects of capitalism that are happening happening at every time. And as a result, his critique, right, his economic critique diverges from his revolutionary critique and his view of the future because he never can adjust the economic critique to remain in line with the uh, vision of the future, Uh
1: yeah. And neither, yeah. n- neither neither, can the disciples, right? Neither can the disciples. Yeah. They're, they're, they're stuck attached to, of course, the thinking and framing of 1848 and the Industrial Revolution in England, I guess, where Marx is doing most of his writing, right? Like that. that's the framing. That's the context in which they're living decades later when they're trying to apply this in Russia, when they're trying to apply this in China, when they're trying to apply this in Cuba, in all of these other places. Now, granted, I'm willing to to admit that some of the... The major movers and shakers of those revolutions that took place later did have to make like because of the material conditions certain certain changes, but that 's why like the purity or the orthodoxy of the Marxism never actually shines through because it 's impossibility. Those adjustments right there make that orthodoxy impossible and it 's one of the biggest and most frustrating things that we still see um, with modern day Marxists or purported Marxists, those that of course are larping as like Stalinists or Trotskyists or Maoists or whatever and I use that word intentionally larping. They're never, ever, and that's why it's, it's religious. It's almost like, quote, like, they're never going to be able to make that adjustment. They're stuck, again, living in the 1848, talking about bourgeois and proletarians. It's an impossibility. It doesn't make sense.
0: Quote from Camus, the unfortunate thing is that Marx's critical method, which by definition should have been adjusted to reality, has found itself farther and farther separated from facts to the exact extent that it wanted to remain faithful to the prophecy. So basically he's saying, you know, Marxist after Marx and even Marx himself fails to make real adjustments to the economic theory because that would have been delegitimized his vision of the future and the path that was, you know, prophesied to use Camus critique to get there. That if he adjusted the underlying economic foundation of his theory, that then anything that came after that would have been delegitimized um, instantly. And then Camus admits that very, very, like Jared just alluded to, very few people actually remain committed to Marx's original philosophy and instead manipulate Marxism to make revolution in their own era. He says, Which quote, is
1: both the fault of Marx and, like I said, the way that it is framed, as well 100%. as the disciples. So it's, 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 it's yeah. mutual. Yeah.
0: Quote, since Marx's death, in any case, only a minority of disciples have remained faithful to his method. The Marxists who have made history have, on the contrary, appropriated the prophecy and the apocalyptic aspects of his doctrine in order to realize a Marxist revolution in the exact circumstances under which Marx had foreseen that a revolution could not take place, right? It just, you know, the basics of Marx's revolutionary theory It's that capitalism has to meet its demise before the next stage can take place. And we know, right, the most famous example, which is what Uh, Camus is talking about here Leninism and then eventually Stalinism, right? The the Soviet Revolution does not follow that blueprint at all, right? It takes place before uh, capitalism even really takes hold in uh, Russia. So yeah, valid critique by Camus. Um, You know, Marx's analysis was based on his present, right? That he was writing is and his economic analysis as it was happening in the nineteenth century. And, you know, one of the greatest critiques that still is the most common critique uh, to this day is that Marx severely underestimated how long it would take capitalism to fail, right? He was incredibly optimistic. When his predictions didn't come true, and it's not as if Marx was like, you know, said capitalism will fall in, you know, 1873 in June, right? Like that's not what happened, but very clearly he, he was more optimistic you know, he thought it would happen in his lifetime, as an example, mm-hmm. right? When that didn't come true, right, Marxists were no, left with no choice but to have faith that it would come true eventually, right? And this is where the faith and this hope, this leap of faith is required, according to Camus, by the Marxists that remain faithful to the ideology.
1: Which isn't any different than thousands of years earlier and basically every decade since of, like, people waiting for the second coming. Like, you cannot take anyone whose prediction of the future is strictly within their own context. You can't take them seriously.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's why it's predicated solely on faith and why Camus is framing Marxism in these religious terms. Because it is.
0: And this is a quote from Camus where he talks about the prophecy of Marxism. He says, prophecy functions on a very long-term basis. It has as one of its properties a characteristic that is the very source of strength of all religions, the impossibility of proof. When the predictions fail to come true, the prophecies remain the only hope. With the result that they alone rule over our history, Marxism and its successors will be examined from here, here from the angle of prophecy. So this is when he gets into the prophecy of Marxism, and he breaks down two different categories. He says the bourgeois prophecy and the revolutionary prophecy. So he suggests that Marx is a bourgeois prophet and a bourgeois philosopher because he makes use of bourgeois discourse in his critique of capitalism, right? So he uses this idea of progress, of science, of industry, of technological development, and so on. And he uses concepts from bourgeois economists like Adam Smith and Ricardo and so forth. These are names that Marxists will be familiar familiar with. He he adopts their theories in his critique of capitalism, Camus says, while
1: assuming, Marxist, while assuming an authoritative writing style tied to that positivist lens. So, almost writing as if what he is yeah. prophesizing is fact. And that is, there's nothing more bourgeois than that.
0: And it's bolstered by the idea that this claim that it is scientific, right? We, uh, anyone that's well versed, I mean, even minutely versed in Marxism and socialism knows the term scientific socialism, right? That That's the, the moniker that Engels and Marx use to give their version of events the authority of science, right? Camus says, "Um, Marx is simultaneously a bourgeois and a revolutionary prophet. The latter is better known than the former, but the former explains many things in the career of the latter. He continues, Marx's scientific messianism is itself a bourgeois origin. Progress, the future of science, the cult of technology, and of production are bourgeois myths which in the 19th century became a dogma.
1: Even more so now. I mean, I I can't even explain like the warship. The warship, whether you're a capitalist or a socialist or a hardcore communist or anything in between, any of those three like whatever major ideologies, all of them, all of them bow to the altar of their devices and their machines. Mm
0: -hmm. Quote, These comparisons only aim to show that Marx, instead of being as the fanciful Marxists of our day would have it, which I think is funny that that's a dig at Sartre, basically the fan- fanatical Marxists of our day. Instead of being as the fanatical Marxists of our day would have it, the beginning and the end of the prophecy, participates on the contrary in human nature. He is an heir before he's a pioneer. His doctrine, which he wanted to be a realist doctrine, actually was a realistic was realistic during the period of the religion of science, of Darwinian evolutionism, of the steam engine and the textile industry. A hundred years later, science encounters relativity, uncertainty, and chance. The economy must take into account electricity, metallurgy, and atomic production. The inability of pure Marxism to assimilate these successive discoveries was shared by the bourgeois optimism of Marxist time. It renders ridiculous the Marxist pretension of maintaining that truths 100 years old are unalterable without ceasing to be scientific. Nineteenth-century messianism, whether it is revolutionary or bourgeois, has not resisted the successive developments of this science and this history, which is different, which to different degrees they have deified. I mean, this is a straight fire of both the economics changed and even science changed in the hundred years, you know, following Marx, that neither his economic theory nor the science that he claims has the same authority as it did before.
1: It's not even applicable Uh, anymore is what he's saying. It's not even authoritative. Like There is no way to apply, again, what he's writing in 1848 to, I mean, even he would even argue even a few decades later. Mm -hmm.
0: Then he goes in the next section of the book is called The Revolutionary Prophecy. He goes into now how Marx's revolutionary theory and how that's also, you know, a prophetic. He says, quote, Marx's prophecy is also revolutionary in principle, principle in that all human reality has its origins and the fruits of production. Historical evolution is revolutionary because the economy is revolutionary. At each level of production, the economy arouses the antagonisms that destroy, to the profit of superior level of production, the corresponding society. Marx's prophecy is revolutionary because he completes the movement of negation begun by the philosophy of illumination. The Jacobins destroyed the transcendence of a personal god, but replaced it by the transcendence of principles. Marx institutes contemporary atheism by also destroying the transcendence of principles. So he also like, I mean, Kimu mentioned this before just very briefly that Marxism seeks out to destroy the principle uh, that the French Revolution has solidified, right? This will of the people, this rationality of human nature, this static human nature, right? Kimu continues, that is why Marx brought to the point of putting the emphasis on the economic and social determination. His most profitable undertaking has been to reveal the reality that is hidden behind the formal values of which the bourgeois of his time made a great show. So Camus actually gives Marx a lot of credit, uh, which anyone has to, I think. But he says his true achievement was in revealing that social values merely reflected the economic values of the ruling class. That the values don't reflect true human nature as like the French revolutionaries would have us to believe, but instead that they are completely relative. And that they only reflect the economic values and the interests of the economic ruling class. We and also have to
1: a lot of credit for his analysis of history as well. But, but yeah, that's right. not yeah, 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 that's not Camus. That's, he doesn't care about that. That's not what he's talking about.
0: Yep. Um, it is now easier to understand the purely economic explanation of history offered by Marx. If principles are deceptive, only the reality of poverty and work is true. If it is impossible to determine demonstrate that this suffices to explain the past and the future of mankind, then the principles will be destroyed forever, and with them the society that profits by them. This is in fact Marx's ambition. So Kimmel says, you know, for Marx, if values are completely relative, right? Morality is relative, this will of the people, the human nature is not static, that it evolves as well, that you know, something must be static, which is why Marx is forced to take the turn to you know, this dogmatic materialism. And, you know, the only thing that is real, according to Camus, for Marx is poverty and work. And therefore, the economy is the driving engine, right? The evolution, uh, the evolutionary factor in history. And Marx isn't, this is why Marx's entire theory must be, you know, the foundational bedrock is on the economy and the material world.
1: Just like the capitalists.
0: Yep. To simplify the Marxist prophecy, uh, the proletariat will, this is my version of this so that we can have context here if you don't know anything about Marxism, you know, the proletariat will eventually rise up, seize the modes of production, and establish a dictatorship of the proletariat, which will eventually wither away. So the workers will essentially assume power, economic power, and then as a result, political power, and they will have the, the power to wield the political apparatus to serve their interests. But for Camus, the logic isn't sound enough and leaves the door open for totalitarianism, right? This is a classic critique of Marxism too, right? Especially from the anarchists. This dictatorship of the proletariat is used oftentimes as a polemic against Marxism from anarchists, right? Like this idea that it will eventually wither away, like that's not good enough for the anarchists, right? Like when and how and why Marx is uh, very, very... It never dies. it never
1: withers away, right? No, it
0: never has, right? And that's what Camus is arguing, right? He's just, mm-hmm. quote... According to the sacred formula, the government of people was then to be replaced by the administration of affairs. The dialect was therefore explicit and justified in the existence of the proletarian state only for the period necessary for the destruction or integration of the bourgeois class. But unfortunately, the prophecy and its attitude of fatalism allowed other interpretations. If it is certain that the kingdom will come, what does time matter? Suffering is never provisional for the man who does not believe in the future. But 100 years of suffering are fleeting in the eyes of the man who prophesizes for the hundred and first year, the definitive city. Essentially, Marx envisions, you know, this utopia, and every Marxist just cringes that I use that term to describe Marxist philosophy, because they're arguing, you know, it's scientific, it's not utopian, read scientific socialism, right, et cetera, like I have many times, but it's still there, right, that Marx is utopic in that the future will be some version of utopia. Right. Well, Camus arguing if that's the vision that, you know, we will all live in absolute happiness in the future and all of our contradictions, etc., will be alleviated. Then it doesn't really actually matter how long totalitarian exists. Right. As far as history is concerned, if it lasts a year, if it lasts 100 years, it doesn't matter as long as someday that utopia is achieved. It has all been worth it. Right. This is Camus taking, I mean, just straight attacking the ideas of Sartre and others that they were making at the time, essentially arguing that what was going on in Stalinist Russia was, quote, unquote, worth it, right? That this was necessary, that the gulags were necessary, and the trials were necessary, and so forth. This was necessary in order for us to achieve the enlightened society of the future. Camus says that that's basically absolute uh, nonsense, right?
1: Well, and it's... uh... It's, I mean, just like we accuse the capitalists. I mean, it's just as morally bankrupt, right? This whole idea that ends right. always justify means, and there's always going to be collateral damage. Like that is pie in the sky religious zealotry, and we see it over mm-hmm. and over again in these uh, hegemonic or attempting to be hegemonic uh, ideologies. Every single time. Yep.
0: Then Camus ties Marx to Nietzsche, which I thought was interesting, and he says basically that they make the same mistakes. You know, he says, "quote." But Nietzsche's tragedy is found here once again. The aims, the prophecies are generous and universal, but the doctrine is restrictive and the reduction of every value to to historical terms leads to the direct consequences. Marx thought that the ends of history at least would prove to be moral and rational. That was his utopia. Marx destroys all transcendence, then carries out by himself the transition from fact to duty. The demand for justice ends in injustice if it is not primarily based on an ethical justification of justice without this crime itself one day becomes a duty when good and evil are reintegrated in time and confused with events nothing is any longer good or bad but only either premature or out of date who will decide on the opportunity if not the opportunist so if you remember back to section two he argues that nietzsche leaves the window open for totalitarianism. He says the same is true here because since Marxism deifies, right, and elevates history, then ethical judgment becomes really, really cloudy and complicated because nothing is ever wrong or right. It's only early or premature or out of date, right, to use Camus' terms, right? So you know this was again going into the arguments of the time that well stalinism is justified now and it seems like you know it might be morally wrong at this time but that's just because history essentially hasn't caught up that it's it's premature you know we will get there and it will be proven right and i thought in this section a lot too you know we have an episode on this um castro's speech history will absolve me clearly he's not i'm assuming making a reference here but this idea that, you know, you, this court, Castro's making the argument, this court has condemned me, but history will evolve, will absolve me. Eventually, people will look back and realize that I was only premature historically, you know, in my actions. But the ideology will catch up and you will see that I was in the right, which I thought was just Interesting yeah, I didn't make that connection, but I mean, it, it makes
1: sense because Castro gives that speech before he's actually done anything that we would consider like morally wrong at that point. He's still honestly like right, the right. Robin Hood good guy when he gives that speech. And then we're and right, yeah, he's the barracks,
0: right? Which is what he was being
1: tried for. That's why he was being tried, but from our revolutionary standpoint, he was well within the right, right? Like that's what needed to be done is storming the Moncada right. Barracks. That said, that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't mean your your point doesn't carry weight, right? Like that's that historical mentality that he had been socialized into within this uh, by buying into the Marxist philosophy that given enough time and given enough space and given enough um, thinking or critical thinking on the topic that all of this will be proven correct because of the assumed – again, scientifically, empirically proven way that this new form of social organization is going to bear itself out and we'll be able to reflect mm-hmm. back on all of these things, all of these terrible things, whether they were, uh, again, gulags in, in the case of Stalin or we're talking about storming Moncada barracks, all of this will be proven right with enough time. And obviously Camus is going to have a huge problem with this. And in my opinion, and it, it, rightfully so.
0: He says this is now, he transitions this section, it's called the failing of the prophecy. He says it doesn't get true, clearly. Um, So Marx lays out this course of events, but then it doesn't come true, and Camus argues that people are forced to take things into their own hands because they have faith in the Marxist philosophy, um, so they have to make it come true on their own, basically. He says, quote, the events and the facts, of course, have forgotten to arrange themselves according to the synthesis. And this already explains why it has been necessary to rally them by force. But above all, the prophecies from the moment that they begin to betray the living hopes of millions of men, Cannot with impunity remain indeterminate. A time comes when the deception transforms patient hope into furious disillusionment, and when the ends, affirmed with the mania of obstinacy, demand with every ever increasing cruelty, make obligatory the search for other means. So he says the ends remain the same, right? The Marxists are still seeking the Marxist revolution, but instead of you know this patience to wait for the economy to crash and material conditions to become right, they instead take things into their own hands. They search for other means and they attempt to make it come true by force, right? According to Camus' assessment of things. Marx, uh, sorry, Camus points out many grave errors that Marx made throughout this section. I just have two examples here. Um, he argues that Marx failed to accurately acknowledge the root differences between anarchism and socialism which clearly is hotly debated still to this day by the anarchists and the Marxists and so forth, right? Camus says, quote, in one of its aspects, the history of socialism in our times can be considered as the struggle between the proletarian movement and the peasant class. This struggle continues on the historical plane, the 19th century ideological struggle between authoritarian socialism and libertarian socialism, of which the peasant and artisan origins are quite evident. Thus Marx had in the ideological material of his time the elements for a study of the peasant problem, but his desire to systematize made him oversimplify everything. Essentially, Camus is saying that, you know, Marx was really, really close, but his commitment to the primacy of the material world and the economics narrowed his lens to such an extent that it was detrimental. Essentially, that socialism is rooted in bourgeois philosophy, which Camus already explained, Whereas anarchism, its root was really the truly the peasant, truly the lower class, right? And so that's interesting. And he says Marx, com- he charges Marx with completely ignoring this fact. That anarchism, according to Camus, is truly the working class
1: philosophy, which once we
0: get to later in the book, Camus is... a some version of an anarchist spoiler alert we'll get there
1: well yeah Um, and i and i think obviously there's the other critiques we've talked about with marxism coming from like bakunin and kropotkin and so on and so forth regarding uh, uh revolutionary vanguards we've already touched upon that that's obviously another a critical role we've never seen it wither away i like Camus taking a different angle on it though in this idea of not truly understanding like labor peasantry and the ideals he's he's basically saying marx is too focused too focused on the material conditions, causing the oversimplification without understanding the actual ideal conditions. Um, and I think that's also one of his biggest failures here. He wants it so badly to be, to be again, provable, verifiable, tested, right? Like observation. He wants it so bad to be scientific that he's willing to ignore all of the other crucial properties. Um, and in this case, he's just as guilty of prescriptive dehumanization as the capitalists.
0: I like uh, Camus, you know, his desire to systematize made him oversimplify everything. I think that sums yeah. it up really, really well, right? That he, he's framing Marx as trying to, you know, shoehorn his theory into something, like you said, that can be scientific, that can be scientifically provable, that, you know, Camus says as a result, it doesn't actually reflect reality and that the anarch, he, he basically ignores the validity of anarchism and the fact that it was reflecting, according to Camus, the truer, at least, desires of the actual peasants and the working class and so forth to eschew all hierarchy and, you know, so on. Uh, he Next, he says the second uh, critique he has here for Marxism is that Marx severely underestimated uh, the importance of nations on a global scale and nationalism. He says, quote, the same desire for simplification diverted Marx from the phenomenon of the nation in the very century of nationalism. He believed that through commerce and exchange to the very victory of the proletariat, the barriers would fall. But it was national barriers that brought about the fall of the proletarian ideal. As a means of explaining history, the struggle between nations has been proved at least as important as the class struggle. The nations cannot be entirely explained by economics. Therefore, the system ignored them. I mean, yeah, I don't know what else to add on that. Other than, you know, Marx definitely did not foresee the power of nationalism and the role that nations would play in defeating the proletarian revolution in many, many instances. You know?
1: Well, and, and and how much more powerful nation and national classification is than, than, than class, than class hierarchy and class stratification. It's not even close. These nation states all around the world, a system of a down. Like, why do they always send the poor, right? Well, because the poor are socialized into believing into their nation, their loyalty to their nation, more so than their loyalty to their class, or even challenging their class structure, right? Like, that's... That's the part that Marx did not predict. In your own note here, and I'm going to read from you here, he said, I can't take any philosopher or economist who was writing 20, 30 years before World War I and didn't predict it. Marx is right on the cusp and he didn't see that coming. All of this underestimation uh, underestimation of nationalism, and we're strong on this. Like we spend a lot of time talking about nationalism because we believe alongside capitalism, maybe even over capitalism, it is the true hegemon. It is the true dominant ideology that dictates everything around it. Um, And it's arguably just as devastating, if not more so. Obviously, other people, and we've probably said this as well, will correlate capitalism and nationalism as if there's some sort of reflexive relationship and they work with each other to keep each other going as dominant ideologies. But again, anyone that doesn't take like the power of the nation state and the faith based around it and the gravity in terms of giving individuals, like rehumanizing those individuals some sort of meaning and being able to dictate what that meaning is and control, again, the socialization process of thinking, speaking, and acting is not a philosopher that, that, again, in your words, can be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean,
0: Camille essentially argues that Marx also missed the fact that while capitalism did result in increasing inequality, you know, Marx failed to understand or at least acknowledge or at least realize how it would relate to the impetus for revolution, how the rising standard of living for the proletariat would at least reduce their impetus to revolt, right? How they would become placated in their position and not as likely to take on the hedge line. Which is a classic critique of Marxism as well. Many have argued this. Uh, Kemmer was just uh, another one to say. Yeah,
1: Marcuse was probably my favorite. He got to this in the mm-hmm. 50s, though, so he had he had a little bit of time. But yeah, like, I mean, it, it, we're not, it, by any stretch of the imaginations on this channel, fans of capitalism whatsoever. It is arguably one of the most immoral philosophies humanity's ever conjured up, and we have major problems with it. However, the idea. Um, If you're going to combat it, that people are just going to naturally achieve class consciousness is becoming increasingly more difficult because one thing that we all have to admit, whether we like it or not, capitalism has provided is like comfort. It's provided certain comforts. It has provided those even if the class gap is widening. The average, again, laborer that works in a low paying job now, let's say it's in fast food versus a low paying job in the uh, 1890s in some sort of factory somewhere, some sort of textile factory, that standard of living, again, I, I, I'm not trying to romanticize, uh, again, fast food work or something along those lines, but that standard of living is so exponentially higher than it was for that person working in the textile factory in the 1890s. That, that's, that's reality fortunately or unfortunately the most staunch marxist or even anarchist like we we tend to gravitate towards has has to admit that and unless you take that reality into place or take it seriously any sort of challenge or major social change to capitalism and the hegemony is it's just going to fall flat on its face you have to take that into account
0: Kimber says quote during 150 years except in the paris of the commune, which was the last refuge of rebel revolution, the proletariat has had no other historical mission but to be betrayed. The workers fought and died to give power to the military or to intellectuals who dreamed of becoming military and who would enslave them in their turn. So it basically says the proletarian revolution has been betrayed at every turn, you know, since the commune, uh, according to which I don't know we would have a lot of argument against that claim uh, at all. He continues, every form of collectivity fighting for survival is forced to accumulate instead of distributing its revenues. It accumulates in order to increase its size and so to increase in power. Whether bourgeois or socialist, it postpones justice for a later date in the interests of power alone. The power opposes other forms of power. It arms and rearms because others are arming and rearming. It does not stop accumulating and will never cease to do so until the day when perhaps it will reign alone on earth. Moreover, for that to happen, it must pass through a war. So he says, you know, this idea that the Marxist revolution, the result will be the distribution of resources, you know, more or less evenly among the people. He says that sort of gets co opted by the revolution itself because the revolution is forced to compete in a capitalist landscape. So it has to accumulate resources to get power and essentially do that endlessly because its opposition is also accumulating resources to get power. So it's just this never ending game of trying to accumulate resources and, as a result, power. And so it never ends, and Camus says it's never going to end until there is a massive war. Is
1: right. this a low-key critique of the dialectic as well, then? This, this kind of reflexive back and forth? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, we skipped the whole section on Hegel, so it's tough to go back there. But yeah, I think so. He has plenty of critique for that, so I wouldn't be surprised. Quote, revolution in the dilemma into which it has been led by its bourgeois opponents and its nihilist supporters is nothing but slavery. Unless it changes its principles and its path, it can have no other final result than servile rebellions obliterated in blood or the hideous prospect of atomic suicide." And this leads us to Camus' best critique of Marxism, in my opinion, and I'm just going to read it. He says, quote, "'How could a so-called scientific socialism conflict to such a point with facts?' The answer is easy. It was not scientific. On the contrary, its defeat resulted from a method Ambiguous enough to wish to be simultaneously determinist and prophetic, dialectic, and dogmatic. If the mind is only the reflection of events, it cannot anticipate their progress except by hypothesis. If Marxist theory is determined by economics, it can describe the past history of production, not its future, which remains in the realm of probability. The task of historical materialism can only be to establish a method of criticism of contemporary society. It is only capable of making suppositions, unless it abandons its scientific attitude about the society of the future. Moreover, it is not for this reason that its most important work is called capital and not revolution. Sorry, is it not for this reason that its most important work is called capital and not revolution? Marx and the Marxists allow themselves to prophesy the future and the triumph of communism to the detriment of their postulates and of scientific method. Then predictions could be scientific, on the contrary, only by ceasing to prophecy definitively. So he says you can either be scientific or you can prophesize about the future, but you cannot be both. Because if you claim to be scientific, then you can't be prophetic. And if you claim to be prophetic about the future, then you cannot be based in science. He says this is a fundamental contradiction of Marxism
1: that's that's our lone attachment to it at this point right like like in our own personal philosophies we still obviously have respect for marx and what he was able to do but Mm -hmm. mostly in terms of critique not prophecy right like if you want to be able to critique the material conditions of which we are existing now marxism obviously provides us a very damn good lens like historical materialism is a wonderful approach i use in history um and i'm grateful for that in terms of applying any of that to what comes next, that's an impossibility that, that then that makes that, that makes us have to do the religious leap of faith, right? It is going to be based on some sort of faith that this is going to continue to work. But again, history's kind of bore out. If I want to be a historical materialist between, again, when he was writing in the 1800s and what's taken place here in, in the 21st century, it's been rendered moot, as Camus has already been talk has already talked about. Mm-hmm. The other thing I thought about when I went through this passage here is how this and how Camus, in a way, and I don't know if this is a, his intent, nor have I done the research to make this connection, is maybe giving us a little bit of a preview of what's coming soon in terms of Western philosophy, post-structuralism, where it is basically really good at providing critique, but does not pretend to prophesize. In fact, it eschews any sort of prophecy like Foucault. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of one of the things. And again, I don't know if there's any connection, maybe you do, but I at least appreciate that.
0: Well, I mean, he's writing this, what, 20 years before, actually not even that long, right before yeah, I mean,
1: so. post-structuralism
0: in France, where Camus is, really takes hold. You know what I mean? Clearly, he influences the post-structuralists, for sure um he then transitions into the next section is the kingdom of ends and this is where he critiques leninism and his deviation from orthodox marxism we're not going to spend any time here really i don't really see any these critiques are this is blue in the face right talking about these critiques of lenin you know and then what ends up becoming stalin uh, and, and lenin's idea that you know Kimu doesn't give him some credit and say, you know, I genuinely believe that Lenin thought the state would have to wither away, but the actions don't, that never comes to fruition, right? That doesn't happen. The actions don't reflect that belief, essentially. And the state, we all know, right, the Soviet state then becomes powerful itself and then Stalin takes it in a whole other direction. Oh,
1: yeah, okay. of the skimming of that section, one thing I do think Camus forgives Lenin a little bit, and you just talked about this, is one of the reasons that Lenin made some of the choices is because he's having to be reactive to the material conditions of the other,
0: mm-hmm. like
1: when we talk about the civil war, uh, the Russian civil war, he's having to deal with the whites, and of course he's having to deal with the anarchists, and of course he's having to deal with the allies, and so on and so forth, like like a lot of it is him. I don't want to say forgiving, but understanding again. Like the re- Lenin has to be more reactionary, perhaps than he wanted to be. But then, of course, that 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 goes back to his earlier philosophy that orthodox Marxism can never be orthodox because it's always going to have to be reactionary because of the material conditions, which is of course the great paradox, right? Right,
0: and then Lenin's actions, like you said, and I, I don't think Lenin a lot either. But I think, like you said, he was dealing with attacks on all fronts, but it leaves the door open for what Stalin then. Uh, accomplishes, right, and many other people. It's not like Stalin as one individual made all this stuff happen, but anyways. Uh, the next section, Rebellion and Revolution, he basically ends this section three of historical rebellion reiterating his ideas about rebellion and revolution. Um, first, he talks about the difference between the French Revolution and the revolution of the 20th century, and he talks about both fascist and socialist revolutions here. He says, quote, the revolution based on principle, this is the French Revolution, the revolution based on principle kills God in the person of his representative on earth. right? kills the king. We talked about that. The revolution of the 20th century kills what remains of God in the principles themselves and consecrates historical nihilism. So essentially the French Revolutionaries killed God's representative on earth by killing the king, right? Uh, and the principles of divine right and so forth. Socialist revolutions have destroyed the principles and instead have sanctified history itself, right? This historical nihilism that Camus is describing is the philosophy to destroy all other principles except for the sanctity of history, right? It it values history and progress over everything else. It's incredibly teleological, right? That history is the scientific thing that will play itself out and eventually as a result, we will get to this ideal society, and ideal human being, and so forth. Um, He then reiterates this idea of rational and irrational revolutions, right, where the irrational is the fascist and the rational is the socialist. He says, quote, To choose history and history alone is to choose nihilism in defiance of the teachings of rebellion itself. Those who rush blindly to history in the name of the irrational proclaiming that it is meaningless encounter servitude and terror and finally emerge into the universe of concentration camps. Those who launch themselves into it preaching its absolute rationality encounter servitude and terror and emerge into the universe of concentration camps. Fascism wants to establish the advent of the Nietzschean Superman. The rational revolution, on its part, wants to realize the total man described by Marx. So he says, either way, the result is some form of concentration camps. right? And we see this play out in history with you know, the concentration camps of Hitler's uh, Germany and the gulags of Stalin's Soviet Union, and so forth. Quote, the former, talking about the fascists, never dreamed of liberating all men, but only of liberating a few by subjugating the rest. The latter, the socialists, in its most profound principle, aims at liberating all men by provisionally enslaving them all. Then he, I thought it was interesting, he argues against the idea that one transitions from rebellion to revolution, which I think is common. People commonly think about it in this way, that a rebel become, starts as a rebel and becomes a revolutionary. He says that there is a more, more complex sort of reflection, reflexive relationship between the two because they exist simultaneously. So he says, quote, The revolutionary is simultaneously a rebel, or he is not a revolutionary, but a policeman and a bureaucrat who turns against rebellion. But if he is a rebel, he ends by taking sides against the revolution, so much so that there is absolutely no progress from one attitude to the other, but coexistence and endlessly increasing contradiction. Every revolutionary ends by becoming either an oppressor or a heretic. In the purely historical universe that they have chosen, rebellion and revolution end in the same dilemma. Either police rule or insanity. On this level, therefore, history alone offers no hope. It is not a source of values, but it is still a source of nihilism. That's basically how he ends out that section, which I think is pretty profound. Anything you want
1: to talk about there? Depressing. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, again, as 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 a historian myself, yeah, obviously, that's like like that's my entire field. We look we look to the past to answer questions about our present and. And in some people's cases, perhaps not necessarily mine, but in maybe Marxist case or, or, or other Marxists as part of the critique to see what might transpire in the future, which again, I mean, you can follow trends. You can do those types of things regarding history. And, and this whole notion that history repeats itself, I think is a bit overly cliche, but there are definitely patterns there. So that's fine. We can use history to maybe, maybe think about what, what might be happening in the future. But to use history as he's insinuating here, at least in this last quote, as just like, okay, well what are these solutions? Is there one? Like, are we, are we, is there always going to be this like permanent back and forth between like faith-based prophecy and the purported values of scientific empiricism? What might, what does that mean in terms of social organization, which is again, the focus here. And what does that mean for the individual that is frustrated or forced to try and change their forms of social organization? And then the word nihilism comes back into, into fruit, into, into the work here. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, and what do we do? I guess that's what I'm left with is, is what do we do? Like, what do we do when we're looking at this past? What do we do if there is no, and what you're insinuating is there is no scientific way to predict the future, which I agree with. I actually agree with all of it, but then like, what do we do? And so uh, I'm not going to spoil it for the listeners, but that's why at the end of this, I'm, I'm left with that feeling. Like, what do we do?
0: Yeah. Which I think is probably intentional, right? Because Camus is going to go into what do we do in the end, right? According to him, what do we do? Uh, The next section is, he talks about art, right? It's part four of the book is Rebellion and Art. So that's where we will pick up next time. I'm Nick.
1: I'm Jared. Later.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app that will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com revolutionandideology revolution Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.